This is Examine Sport, a podcast of the Sports Ethicist. I am your host, Sean Klein. Each episode of Examine Sport focuses on an argument or concept in the philosophy of sport literature. We will look at classic, discipline-defining articles, exciting, newly published works, and dig deep for important but not as well-known papers. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all the shows, along with links and related information, at sportsethicist.com. In this episode of Examine Sport, I discuss J.S. Russell's important and influential paper, are rules all an umpire has to work with. Published in the Journal of the Philosophy of Sport in 1999, Russell presents a theory of sport adjudication that he argues better explains sport, the role of officials and umpires, and guides those officials in officiating their sports. It's also important as a major paper for understanding one of the central philosophic accounts of sport. This theory, often referred to as interpretivism, has many proponents, and Russell's paper is one of the first explicit attempts to explain and apply the theory. Now, in order to get a good sense of the arguments in Russell's paper, I'm going to cover it in two episodes. This is part one. Now, Russell tells us that his primary aim in the paper is to shed light on the nature and limits of umpires' discretion in interpreting and applying the rules of the games they adjudicate. So in order to do this, Russell needs to explain why there is a need for umpire discretion in the first place. Aren't umpires and referees just making calls according to the rules of the game? Shouldn't they just take the rules in the rulebook and apply those to the game being played? Why do they need discretion or theory about interpreting and applying the rules? Now, Russell calls this view the ideology of games. It's a view that the rules of a game are fully authoritative and determinate. The rules fully set the terms of the game and its permissible and impermissible behaviors. In this way, Russell says, it provides a refuge from the uncertainty that accompanies the institutions of life in the real world. But, Russell says, this is an erroneous, hopeful illusion. While acknowledging that this ideology of games is prevalent among participants, fans, and umpires, he argues that it is false and can't account for what actually goes on in the adjudication of games. Quote, it obscures the untidiness of rules and institutions, end quote. And once recognized, quote, the issue of the proper nature and extent of umpire discretion cannot be ignored, end quote. Now, to show how the rules can fail to be sufficient, he presents several hard cases. So these actual cases demonstrate scenarios where the official rules of a game were indeterminate leaving gaps that needed to be filled in by umpires. Now, for the sake of time, I'm only going to briefly touch on these cases. Now, the first is called helping out at home. So this is the case where Reddy uh, Ruddy Mack scored a run and so was no longer a base runner. He then interfered with the catcher, allowing the runner behind him to score. Now, this scenario was not covered by the rules at the time. This was uh, 1887. And the rule about interference with a fielder applied to a base runner, but Mack was no longer a base runner. He had already scored. The umpire nevertheless disallowed the run enabled by Mack's interference and called the runner out. Now, Russell explains this ruling as justified because it preserves the good conduct 
and integrity of the game. Russell explains this ruling as justified because it preserves the good conduct and integrity of the game. It is further justified by the ratification of the umpire's ruling in subsequent rule changes. The next hard case is what he calls foul ball triple. Now, in this case, a fielder threw his glove at a ball to make sure a foul ball stayed foul. The umpire awarded the hitter a triple based on the rule at the time. This was 1947. The rule said that a batter gets a triple if a fielder throws his glove at and interferes with a hit ball. So this case highlights two issues. One, the rule was vague. It didn't differentiate between a foul and a fair ball. Uh, <clears throat> and two, an apparent conflict within the rules is here. Instead of awarding the triple, the umpire could have called the ball foul and thus a dead ball just by the fact that it touched an object foreign to the ground. So this ambiguity of the rule and the conflict between rules shows that the umpire has a decision to make that is not determined fully by the rules. The third scenario, the third hard case is hoax sacrifice. So Don Hoke was on second with a man also on first. In order to break up a double play, Hoke catches the ball himself. So he's the runner, but he catches the ball. He's called out, but the runners behind him are not, since there's no rule requiring the umpire to call those runners out on an interfere-battered ball. So instead of having uh, two outs and only one runner on base, the penalized team has only one out and two runners. So they're in an advantage. Uh, so it seems like this is a case where the penalized team unfairly benefits from being penalized. Further, the norm in baseball runs against interfering with batted balls. So such a scenario is not anticipated by the rules, and by just mechanically applying the rules, we have an unfair advantage for one team and an inducement for further interference by runners. The rule was subsequently changed to require the second out on such an interference, further uh, uh, underlining um, the need for uh, these, these sorts of, of adaptions to the rules. Now, the third uh, case is called the, uh, the pine tar incident. And this is the infamous George Brett home run that was disallowed because he had too much pine tar uh, on his bat. Now, Brett's bat was indisputably in violation of the rule about illegal bats, but it's also just as clear that he didn't gain any undue advantage with the pine tar on his bat. The umpire felt compelled to rule Brett out based on the rules. The league president, Lee McPhail, reinstated the home run based on the idea that, quote, the ruling was not in keeping with the intent or spirit of the game itself, declaring that, quote, games should be won and lost on the playing field, not through technicalities of rules. Now, these cases show that rules may be vague or indeterminate as to meaning, intent or scope. Rules may conflict. Rules may fail to foresee situations that must be regulated to ensure the good conduct of the integrity of the game. Thus, there, there is a, quote, practical necessity for the exercise of discretion by umpires that goes beyond immediate rules of the game, end quote. So this need for discretion shows the need for theory to explain and guide the exercise of this discretion. Now, Russell argues that Ronald Dworkin's theory of law can be a useful guide here. Now, without getting too deep into the legal philosophy, there are a few key ideas relevant for Russell's project. First, legal rules are indeterminate. 
either in themselves due to the inherent vagueness of language or in terms of how the rule should be applied. The intent or purpose of the rule might be unclear or the circumstances might not have been foreseen by the rule. Second, legal systems are not just sets of rules. Moral principles are also part of any legal system. And lastly, judges ought to strive to make decisions that make the rules, principles, and prior cases cohere into a comprehensive vision of the law. What this means is that judges, uh, in these so-called hard cases, cases where the current rules are in some important way insufficient to provide a just outcome, judges need to make use of their discretion and make a ruling that coheres with the underlying principles and integrity of the legal system. Now, this is called interpretivism because the judge has to interpret the law in order to apply it. It's not a mechanical application of the rules, nor is it an arbitrary decision by the judge. The judge makes the best interpretation of the rules he or she can, given the principles and integrity of the legal system. Now, Russell uh, draws a near direct parallel to the framework of umpire discretion in interpreting and applying the rules of sport. Quote, we might try to understand and interpret the rules of a game, say baseball, using these principles to generate a coherent and principled account of the point and purposes that underlie the game, attempting to show the game in its best light, end quote. To this end, Russell presents four principles of adjudication in sport. The first rule is that rules should be interpreted in such a manner that the excellences embodied in achieving the losery goal of the game are not undermined but are maintained and fostered. The second principle is that rules should be interpreted to achieve an appropriate competitive balance. The third principle is that rules should be interpreted according to principles of fair play and sportsmanship. And lastly, rules should be interpreted to preserve the good conducts of games. Now, Russell doesn't intend this to be an exhaustive list. There are other principles that might be relevant for a given game or set of circumstances, but these provide, according to Russell, the general framework of adjudication. So let's briefly look at each in turn. <clears throat> so rules should be interpreted in such a manner that the excellences embodied in achieving the losery goal of the game are not undermined by are not undermined, but are maintained and fostered. Now, if you have listened to the episodes on Bernard Suits and his view of games, this will be somewhat familiar to you. The basic idea is that games are fundamentally about overcoming arbitrary obstacles. We develop skill sets to overcome these obstacles, and the superior players are ones with superior excellences at overcoming. The rules set the context for these obstacles and excellences, and so they need to be interpreted in ways consistent with this. Russell calls this, quote, the first principle of games adjudication. It is the most fundamental principle for adjudication. The other principles are in many ways just more specific applications of this first principle. Now, the second rule or principle is that rules should be interpreted to achieve an appropriate competitive balance. As a means of making sure that all participants have a fair chance at participating and demonstrating the losery excellences of the first principle, umpires should interpret rules to make sure that they do not, quote, unduly prejudice the outcome from the beginning in favor of some of the participants, end quote. 
This is one of the reasons why the umpire in helping out at home was justified in making his ruling, or the umpire in Hoke's sacrifice was wrong in not calling the second out. Both cases, in their own way, highlight the importance of allowing the players the opportunity to demonstrate their excellences and skills of baseball. Allowing interference with the catcher or a possible double play reduces the competitive balance between offense and defense, uh, between the skills of base running and of fielding. The third rule, or sorry, the third principle, rules should be interpreted according to the principles of fair play and sportsmanship. So in many cases, the rules are silent about what a player is permitted to do. For example, they may not explicitly rule out the use of coercion against opposing players. Yet this hardly means that such actions are to be permitted. Principles of fair play and sportsmanship ought to be used by umpires in those cases where, one, the rules are silent or vague, uh, and two, where permitting the behavior leads to unfairness and bad behavior. Now, the last principle is that rules should be interpreted to preserve the good conduct of games. This principle is not just about the good behavior of participants. It's also about the progress and continuity of the game. It's most relevant in cases where the game is unnecessarily interrupted or broken up, and the umpire needs to make a ruling to get the game back on track. Russell uses the example of an umpire requiring the pitcher to speed up his delivery to prevent him from slowing down the game too much. Similarly, with the helping out at home case, the umpire rules that the runner is out since Mac interfered. This helps to preserve the good conduct of the game to prevent interruptions from interference. Now, in part two, we'll look at some further applications of these principles and also at how Russell responds to objections. Thank you for listening to Examine Sport. You can subscribe, comment, and find an archive of all the shows, along with links and related information at sportsethicist.com. Please also consider rating the show on iTunes, liking it on YouTube, and sharing on Facebook, Twitter, and elsewhere. You can email the show, sportsethicist, at gmail.com.